Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question for the two of them as the patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to our first episode of 2024. Hey, Robbie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So let's begin with New Year's resolutions. Do you make them? Do you follow them? And what can you tell listeners about them? It's been changing as I look back over the last two decades. I used to make more resolutions, but as I'm now in the second half of uh, a century of living, I find that I'm making fewer resolutions as time goes by. And so um, they're more general. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that the things that I am focused on become fewer and fewer. So I was much more divergent in my interests before, and now I'm really focusing down. And I also have a little bit of skepticism about resolutions in general, which is why I think it's really cool that we're gonna be talking about this today. Uh, I certainly make resolutions for myself, when I, especially around fitness, around relationships, around nutrition. Um, but I want to ask as we talk, you know, what does it actually mean to have a resolution? If you resolve to do something, doesn't that mean you're going to do it once and for all and you don't have to keep making these things every year? As you well know, in healthcare, uh, there's not a whole lot that we do that we do once and that's it. Maybe have our appendix taken out. But in terms of ourselves, no, I think we have to do it every day. And so you're absolutely right. I think you're resolving that for the rest of your life, you're going to eat better, exercise better, uh, maximize your relationships. All the pieces that we know produce health. I think that's one of the reasons it's so difficult in people's current lives. Yeah, when I'm looking at the statistics on New Year's resolutions, because people come to me for advice on how to prevent heart attacks and patients who've already had stents in their hearts or high blood pressure, you know, what do I do to make the change? And this is actually a really good time for people to come. The, the New Year's, it's, it's not an accident that we make resolutions on New Year's uh, or other certain holidays. There's a psychological effect. It's called the fresh start effect. And this has been studied. It's better to make a resolution on a Monday, the beginning of a week, than on a Wednesday. It's just something to keep in mind. So when people come to me and we talk about resolutions, I try to go deep. I try to ask them, why is this important to you? Uh, and unless, and this is for myself as well, unless I really get to the root of the motivation of why change needs to happen, not I'd like to lose a few pounds, but why is it imperative? I find it's hard to get things to stick. There's a lot of research about the, as you, well, you say, when you start, but also the space between the resolutions. So as an example, we take medication, let's say every day, and if we take it when we brush our teeth, either we get up, we go to sleep, it's easy because we're associating with an event that's going to have a start, a specific time to it, and... Theoretically, we will remember to do so and follow up. 
I think a year is too long. That's my problem with New Year's resolutions and why I think so many people don't follow it. Because invariably, when you have an activity that I'll say is not easy to do or easy to remember to do, you start start to forget to do so. And so I think that, as you say, the, da the data says that most people give up, I think by the end of January, most of the, the uh, plans um, to uh, make a resolution to exercise or to eat better. And I think it's really important that we break that down into smaller segments, short-term goals, um, and actually ones that we can renew every day of the week, not just after the fresh start. Um, so as an example, I tell myself to eat five colors a day, and I try to do it every day. But if I don't do it on Wednesday, it doesn't mean I've already failed by Thursday. I can start again Thursday and Friday. And so there is a way that I can go back to my resolutions as long as they are very specific and I'll say relatively easy to accomplish. Robbie, I'm smiling as you're sharing this because it's a very humble thing to hear you uh, describe that you, you know, someone who's so accomplished and successful actually need to remind yourself each and every day to do something that is just healthy as eating, eating healthy food. Um, and I'm, I'm laughing because I'm the same way. I, I have to get out of bed each morning and set some kind of an intention. And there's an overlap between a resolution and an intention, but the intention could be something like, I'm going to you know, try to be kind to people in my office today. Um, and I, the takeaway from what you said, the fact that you have to remind yourself, it's not that I think you have a bad memory. <laughs> I just think that there's something about being human where where we need to continuously keep ourselves on track. I do think that there is something to be said for long-term resolutions and intentions to, in order to sort of give a North Star over the course of, like, for example, what I often do is I set a theme or a word for the year. And that more general approach is helpful for me more than specific resolutions. It helps me determine what my monthly goals might be. So last year, my goal was strong. So I had a certain number of days per month that I wanted to go to the gym, strong mentally, strong emotionally. Um, and so I find it more helpful to think about how do I want to experience my life? How do I want to feel this year? Not what do I want to do? And then based on the feeling that I want to achieve, then I think, okay, how can I get to that place? So it's more about the experience of my life than some objective measure, I guess. Well, I would concur that people often have a general theme and never take it down to the specifics. You know, they want to be healthy, but they have to take it down to running or walking a certain number of days a week, uh, or as in your example, going to the gym to become strong. I would question whether being kind is a good resolution or intention. And by that, I mean, it's so nonspecific. But I think if you have a specific way that says, you know, I've forgotten to thank someone by a specific name, and today I'm gonna do that, or greet people in a way that is more respectful or um, more collegial, uh, those are the kinds of pieces that are there for listeners who might be thinking about health, 
putting a monthly map on your refrigerator and crossing off every time you exercise or every time that you uh, invest in stretching or meditation or relaxation and giving yourself that credit for it, that has been shown to be able to keep you back on track and recognize that every one of us gets off track. I don't care who mm. you are. You just can't do it every single day. Something comes up. And the challenge that I see with resolutions is that once we get off track, we gain a little bit of weight and we say, ah, forget it. I'll never get back to the weight <laughs> I want to be. So I might as well gain twice as much or three times as much. And instead, how do we keep bringing ourselves back to where we want to go and recognize that if there are 12 months in the year and we do well 10 months of the year, that's not two months of failure. That's 10 months of success. Hmm. So, so you just said so much there, Robbie. Um, what you what you made me think of, you know, when, when I talked about being kind and going to the clinic, there's more to that practice. So I always link something with a setting an intention or a resolution, and that's a practice of visualizing. And for people who haven't done this, it's simply once you've decided what you want, you close your eyes. It helps to close your eyes. And then you try to see in vivid detail yourself entering a situation. It could be a boardroom. It could be the breakfast table, how you're speaking to your family. Or in my case, I imagine myself walking into the office and there's 35 staff members. I'll probably see four or five of them. Who am I going to say hi to? Do I have a smile on my face? What's my posture? Um, and I do this because this is what successful athletes do. And this is what successful violinists do. All of them do this practice. And it's visualizing yourself achieving your resolution or your intention. There's something about that that primes the brain. It's almost as if you've already achieved the thing because you've seen it happen. Uh, do you have any kind of a visualization practice, Robbie? Uh, I have a visualization practice just about the day and seeing the things that I want to complete by the end of it. But I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember back to when I was a kid, I was playing on a uh, baseball team that was going to be going to a big championship game. And we had a great coach. The coach did hitting and pitching and fielding. And at the end, he made us celebrate the victory, creating a scrum in the middle of the field as though we had just won. So we had visualized it and practiced it and experienced it. Mm -hmm. So when the time came, we'd be ready to embrace it. So I agree with you. It's a, it's a remarkable opportunity to be able to have the flow of emotion and be both prepared for it and to maximize the probability that it will occur. Hmm. I love the image of, of visualizing not just success, but the celebration itself. Uh, that reminded me of something else I thought of when, as you were speaking, which is there's this tendency. Kelly McGonigal wrote a book called The Willpower Effect, which was really good. And there's been controversy about, do we have something called willpower? Uh, some people say we, we should focus more on what we won't do, what we won't accept. But she described your phenomenon as the what the, what the hell effect. In other words, I already broke my diet. What the hell? I might as well go have a whole pizza. And the important part of that, the way that I've found to work with that, which is which is not something we do naturally, is something called self-compassion, which is along with recognizing our human vulnerability, the fact that we are going to slip up, we can also prepare that in those moments, instead of yelling at ourselves internally and being really harsh 
and really mean sometimes, like you had screwed up again. Instead, we can take this more loving, kind, nurturing approach towards ourselves as if we were your coach, your high school coach. What would the coach say? The coach would say, you know, I'm really proud of you. You tried your best. You did slip up. Let's go for it again. I, you know, let's celebrate your victory. So for me, that was a real uh, pivotal moment in my life in terms of making it, uh, making my resolutions stick is when I slip up, not to beat myself up, not to end up in a downward spiral for a day, a week, or a month, but to pause and say, you know, it didn't go as well as I wanted. I know I can do better next time. And then it helps me move on much more quickly and actually feel good about it. The other piece, Robbie, that you hit on that I really think is worth emphasizing. Resolutions for me fit into this broader category of habit change, which is a billion dollar business. You know, you look at the bookshelves of the self-help section and it's atomic habits, little habits, whatever you want to call it. There's something about us humans that we want to know how to break bad habits and make good habits. And I find it interesting to make it really simple. And, you know, whether it's Robert Duhigg's book on habits, there's a, a cue, like brushing your teeth, like you said, there's the behavior. So the cue would be, I'm standing at my sink. The behavior is brushing my teeth. And then the reward. This is the key, I believe, to all habit change. And this is why your coach's practice of having you imagine celebrating works. We often leave this out. Anytime you want a new habit, you have to feel good about the new habit in some way. That could be feeling physically strong. It could be pride in your accomplishments, whatever it is. But if we overlook that little sense of reward, that little dopamine hit, as some people call it, we often don't feel motivated to continue with this new behavior. So I wanted to add that as well. Well, let me encourage our listeners that, let's say, come February the 1st, so there's a little bit of time and there's a start date, pick one habit, write it down, post it on your refrigerator, translate it into action, See if you can follow it. And if at the end of the month, now there are 29 days this February, not just 28, but at the end of the 29 days, if you've done it in 25 days or 23 days, even 21 days, take the chance to celebrate and be able to congratulate yourself on the way that you've improved your health for the future. But let's shift on now, Jonathan. What's on your mind? Well, I'm thinking about an anesthesiologist from World War II named Henry K. Beecher, who discovered something that has a powerful impact on every patient encounter that I have. And I mean every single patient encounter. And I think a lot of doctors and nurses and even healthcare leaders don't take this into account. And what he described was the placebo effect. And uh, basically what Beecher found is that among the fighters, uh, those who are on the ground in pain, uh, he tried giving, instead of morphine, injecting saline, uh, and he did, he did studies, and they found that saline itself relieved the pain of these wounded soldiers about 40% of the time, and this is something that has been tested in many different ways, uh, In most clinical trials have a placebo arm, so we can see that whatever the drug is, there's always this effect that can't be explained by the medicine itself or the treatment itself. And I'm going to say that we are not utilizing the placebo 
enough in medicine, and I don't think we're using it correctly. And I think we're doing it uh, as and as a result, many patients uh, are ending up harmed, uh, and I think we're also wasting a lot of money because we don't respect the fact that non-physical factors have a direct and measurable effect on patient healing. Um, I want to ask you, do you think this is possibly true, or do you think uh, the placebo effect is, is a bunch of hooey? Uh, well, I don't know that I have a personal belief, but I've read the research and the literature on it, and it's very strong supporting placebo. Uh, one of the operations that surgeons often do is uh, in individuals who have, a, who have knee pain, they insert a laparoscope, they find the slight tears in the various ligaments and the various, uh, it's called menisci in the knee joint. They trim them up and patients feel better. Uh, it sounds great, right? But some researchers in Canada did the following experiment. They took a bunch of patients, half of them they made the skin incision, inserted the scope, looked inside the joint, took the scissors out, did minor trimming, and the other half, they made the skin incision and never inserted the scope. And guess what happened? Both groups improved equally. And this is clearly the placebo effect because there was nothing making that skin incision would have done to change the uh, minor degrees of inflammation and arthritis sitting in that knee joint. So we know it mm. definitely exists. Yeah, so, so exactly. So the placebo effect is, we've all experienced it to some degree. And I find it interesting to think about, well, how does it work? So what is it about the patient who has a sham surgery, essentially, um, who comes out of that surgery and feels better? And how is it that a belief, so a belief in the brain, a belief in the mind results in uh, a sense of less pain, uh, a better quality of life, and it really makes me wonder how much of these subjective symptoms that we have are not physical in a sense, but are actually mental. And imagine how many surgeries are done unnecessarily uh, to the point of that surgery. And I'm wondering how can we utilize this fact uh, in healthcare? How can we utilize it better? And also how can we do it ethically? Um, I'm gonna give you an example from my clinic. So one of the number one issues that I deal with is coronary artery disease. And along with lifestyle medicine and the pillars of healthy living and diet and exercise and sleep and nutrition, uh, we often lean on statin drugs in order to lower the LDL cholesterol to a very low level because we know that can prevent disease. The problem, as you know, is that of all the patients that I give statins, about 30% may end up complaining or sending me a message that I have to respond to that their muscles are aching. And so there's been some research in the last few years looking at this and saying, well, what is it about the statins that are damaging the muscles? And we now know that, yes, there is something that about the drug itself that can harm muscles, but in closed label trials where people don't know what they're getting, um, the rate of statin related muscle pain is much lower than when people know that I'm prescribing them a statin. In fact, the difference could be as much as 20 or 30%. So in clinical trials, maybe five or 10% of people may have some muscle aches or other side effects, but in the real world where we're prescribing it, it's much higher than that. And so 
a lot of people end up missing out on a really important treatment. And instead, this is the irony of it, instead, because they're having what's called the nocebo effect or a negative harmful effect that may not be actually caused by the drug itself, they may go and see an alternative medicine provider who sells them some snake oil, essentially. But because the patient believes that that helps, they're going to subjectively feel better. It may not lower their cholesterol at all. So this is something that I'm struggling with, Robbie, um, how to help my patients understand how important their beliefs about the effectiveness of the treatments are, uh, and then how to help my colleagues realize that the way they communicate with patients and the relationship that they develop has a direct impact on how effective the treatments are going to be. What are your thoughts about this and what's been your experience? Well, again, I think that both placebo, you mentioned nocebo. I've actually heard people talk about the statin work you, you're describing as nocebo, all these different, uh, what would that be, SIBOs, uh, impact uh, people. And it's just a sign that the world we see is all through our brain. You know, we think about it as being uh, touching a hot stove, being on our fingertips. It's not, it's in our brain. That's how we perceive it. We don't recognize it until it gets there or an aching of pain, being in a particular joint, but it's not. It all resides inside of our skull. So to the point you made, which is how do you do this uh, in the most uh, ethical way possible? I think we have to recognize the power both on the positive and the negative side that exists and where the data will lead to a better outcome. So with a particular drug, as you're saying, the opportunity to be able to speak about it, that is going to provide a positive outcome is going to be excellent. On the other hand, I think we have to be a little careful when the information we provide to people about a treatment has a alternative downside. I'm thinking very much now cancers, patients with cancer. If we're promising that the drug is gonna have an effect when it may not, and individuals are gonna die because of the cancer, not because of the drug, then we're in a different situation because individuals may need to make different choices about their life. So figuring out where being optimistic about a drug, even though it may only have a 40% chance of reducing pain and something else might be done, for 40% of people, that's a far better treatment than a addicting narcotic with the potential for overdose and uh, death. So that's, that's the challenge that I see. How do we do it only in ways that are gonna be positive for individuals and their health and life and not do it in ways that are going to lead them to a false sense of optimism and as a consequence of that, be able be miss, missing better opportunities, things they would regret if they knew it was going to happen. Hmm. I, I agree with how you phrase that. And it, it takes me to the next question, which is if we're saying that a patient's belief in the effectiveness of whatever we're doing, whether it's even watchful waiting, you're gonna be okay. If the patient's belief is more optimistic, but they're gonna call, I'm gonna call that realistic optimism. In other words, 
we're not lying to anyone. We're, we're giving people in full transparency the likelihood of a positive outcome. But what I'm suggesting is we often don't pause to check what the patient's expectations are of the effectiveness of the treatment. And we don't often communicate our own sense of optimism, which is very easy to do. I'm not talking about false belief. I'm, I'm talking about the patient who has you know, some anxiety. And if I encourage them to do certain exercises and meditation techniques, that I'm optimistic that it will help. Taking a moment to convey that optimism and to assess the patient's beliefs in the treatment goes a long way as opposed to skipping that step. So that's really what I'm getting at. I've seen this play out in patients who have pain. So I have patients who come with chest pain, angina, which I cannot take lightly. I have to take that seriously each and every time because one time I miss it, it could be life and death. However, I have a lot of patients with chronic chest pain, which can be disabling and impair their quality of life. And I've tried every single medication, which is when I really need to pause and start looking at what are their beliefs about their own future, their optimism that there is a potential brighter future. Because if a patient is stuck in a, in a pessimistic view of their own future, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I've had several times where I've helped people look at that, explore their own beliefs about their body and what might happen. And you, I want to say magically, but it's not magic. Um, endorphins get released when we have positive beliefs. Um, serotonin gets released, uh, a little bit of dopamine. And lo and behold, some of these patients have less pain, less anxiety, even less depression, less insomnia. But again, we have to do this, I have to do this ethically which means I often explain to patients, I say, we don't talk about the power of your beliefs in your outcomes. And let's just look into that for a little bit. So that's really what I'm advocating for, Robbie, instead of glossing that over. Well, tying this back into the resolution piece, one of the things that uh, people have found is that rather than telling patients to exercise three times a week, you write it out as a prescription. You actually put it on a prescription pad, just like you were ordering a uh, medication for the individual, and you hand it to them and ask them to fulfill it. And that, at least among the people I've spoken to who have done it, feel as though individuals not only will accomplish it more often, but be more optimistic and committed to doing it because it feels like something, not that the doctor's recommending, but the doctor's prescribing and you don't prescribe a medication unless you're pretty sure it's going to have a salutary impact. I, I love that you brought that up, Robbie. I was not taught that in medical school. And that's only a practice that I've been doing in the last five to 10 years, I would say. I, I don't necessarily write out the prescription, but I go a little bit overboard in terms of giving patients instructions for what they can do while I'm working on testing and medications and all that other stuff. And I, I, I think the reason it works is it gives patients and it gives me a sense of empowerment that someone's actually doing something. They're taking back this autonomy, this control over their own health, which is often lost in the disease process where there's chronic disease and you shuffle from one doctor to the next. So even giving a simple instruction, you know, like, I, you, you're going to walk for 10 minutes this week and then making sure that they're behind that. I love that you brought emphasis to that you know, patient autonomy and giving that instruction. 
yeah, it's a little bit of a placebo effect. Uh, and it's also respecting how important a patient's sense of their own hand is in, their, in the future of their health. Well, Robbie, there's, there's a lot more to talk about on the mind-body connection, and maybe we'll pick that up. I wanted to throw it back to you to see if uh, there was anything else on your mind as we begin the new year. The one thing I'd like to ask you about, Jonathan, because I suspect it's in your wheelhouse, given all the work you've done, the excellent work around burnout and helping individuals, is this whole idea of flow. You know, I often have the sense that sometimes um, things are going great and tomorrow's going to work nicely. And sometimes it just feels very bumpy. Uh, how do you think about flow and what do you think we can do as individuals to increase, I'll say, the good flow in our life? I love the idea of flow. It's, it's a really uh, important topic. And if you're talking about the field of positive psychology or just having a good life, you know, doesn't it feel better to live a life where things are more fluid and in, and in flow from, and less obstructed each and every day, less frustration? Um, what you're speaking about is a very specific concept that a lot of people know about. But for those who don't, it was described in the 1970s and 1980s by one of the early pioneers in this positive psychology movement, which is you've been alluding to it. Instead of focusing on all the things that go wrong and what we don't do well, what if we focused on all the things in our life that are going well? And what if we emulated people who live healthy, happy lives? Instead of trying to avoid the bad, let's seek out the good. And what Csikszentmihalyi found, and he worked with violinists and Olympic athletes, and this was during the 70s and 80s, and this field of human peak performance was really coming, coming up to the forefront, and now it's mature. He found that they all had this one thing in common, which is any expert, any master in any field, someone who's at the top of their game, shares this psychological state, which is very unique, and it has certain characteristics. And if we study this state and we know the characteristics and we know what kind of an environment predisposes to those, well, then we can apply it in our families, we can apply it in our sports, we can apply it in our workplace. And this has been offered as a remedy for burnout in some ways, not as a remedy, but as I would say, as a different way of approaching burnout. Instead of avoiding burnout, Let's just set up the process so that we can achieve flow. So what is flow? It's some people call it being in the zone, being in the groove. You kind of know it if you've been there. It's this mental state where time fades away. You're so engrossed in an activity. If it's, if it's running or if it's for me, if it's talking with a patient about something that's, you know, we're trying to make a diagnosis where time fades away. Um, there's no sense of really efforting or trying really hard. It, it sort of comes naturally. There's some challenge involved, but not so much that I want to I want to give up and it creates this positive neurochemical environment in my own body so that it's almost like a high in a sense. And the idea is, how can we as leaders in healthcare and, and elsewhere start thinking about those who work in our organizations as not as machines, not as robots, not as AI assisted hybrids, but as flesh and blood who need need to feel good about what they're doing and humans need this is a basic human need to feel a sense of mastery and as we just talked about autonomy which literally means i am in control of parts of my life so uh, for example in clinic how can we create an environment so that 
each physician, nurse, and employee is able to work at the top of their game. We have to remove obstacles. We have to have very clear desired outcomes for each one of these people. What are your roles? What are you trying to achieve? And there has to be very clear feedback. This is often missing. So if I'm, if I'm uh, doing some activity, um, let's say if I'm running, I want to know what's my speed, how, do my, how does my body feel? There's a checking in that happens. So this is the basic overview of flow, Robbie, and I find it to be um, a wonderful way to check my own life. Uh, how are things going? How many instances of flow can I create for myself each day? If I'm going to go on vacation, you know, can I be in the moment of uh, savoring, you know, the, the northern lights if I'm lucky enough to ever see them? Uh, so that, those are my thoughts on flow. What's your experience with flow, Robbie? My experience is that it happens in certain activities. As you know, I'm a runner. I run every single day. And I love running because for me, I'm in flow. It feels easy. I know that'll sound crazy to some other folks. On the other hand, put me in a yoga class. It is pure pain for the entire hour. So running to me is flow. I actually, I shut my left brain off. My right brain turns on. My most innovative thoughts and most creative endeavors come out of that. Uh, the same thing happens when I'm writing. When I'm writing, whether it's my articles or my books, it doesn't matter. The time goes by. I can literally sit there for an entire day and be happy the entire time, assuming that the concepts are working and developing further. I'm less uh, committed when it's grammar corrections, but the actual creation process. But there are a lot of other parts of my life that don't flow. And I guess what I'm asking you as an expert is, is flow just something that's intrinsic to us in certain areas and not in other areas? Or is there something we can do to increase or expand that sense of flow into the other parts of our day-to-day -day existence? There's, there's absolutely a way that we can, we can create more flow in our lives. Each and every person can do that. And you don't have to be a, an expert runner or, or expert anything to do it. Flow can be as simple as you know, baking a cake. Um, the, first, the first challenge that we face are the phones in our hands and the beeps and buzzes and all the people that are vying for our attention in the world today. And there's no way to achieve flow. I'm willing to bet, Robbie, that when you're doing your writing, you don't have all the doors open with people and running in and out uh, with all sorts of interruptions and getting calls from work. So the first step in achieving flow, well, the first step is to think of, well, what's the activity that I would enjoy? And it could be as simple as going for a walk. Uh, and so the next question is, how do I eliminate distractions? How do I create an environment so that the normal day-to-day -day interruptions just don't go there? And that's a whole hour conversation in itself is how do we manage our iPhone? That's a, maybe a separate day. <laughs> uh, so we turn off all our notifications. We uh, make arrangements with people in our lives and we say, I'm going to get more flow in my life this year and I'm going to do it in this activity. I need your help to protect me during this time so I can have it unobstructed. The next step, you know, technically in flow is to have a very clear goal. It could be to run for one hour at this pace on this path and then a way of knowing whether you're successful or not. That's another key. So it's not a random activity. Um, and then setting aside a time, whether it's five minutes or an hour. I personally find flow when I'm meditating. 
uh, there's this interesting experience where it is challenging because it's challenging to sit still. And yet after a few minutes, five, 10, 15 or 20 minutes, there's this almost like a, a, a high sensation that can come. Um, it's challenging to do nothing. Uh, and I feel a sense of reward just by doing that. So the answer is that you can set up uh, processes and environments where flow can happen, um, but you have to have a clear goal of what you're trying to, to do. It may be to, to play a soccer game. Uh, you have to have clear feedback and you have to have something that's challenging in the flow zone. Well, thank you so much for your advice. I'll give it a try, Jonathan. So you both talked about New Year's resolutions earlier in the year. And as you're aware, you know, you go to the gym now, it's going to be super busy in a month, like the numbers are going to drop off by half or even more. Um, what advice do you have for people to kind of help celebrate the milestones as they kind of try to make some of these changes in their lives and to stick with them? Well, for me, uh, it would be really simple. So we can celebrate in, in two ways. We can celebrate with ourselves and we can celebrate with others. I find that celebrating with others is even more fun because if you're with good friends and you people who support you and know that you have goals and someone else is like, way to go, great job, it really amplifies things. It's an add-on effect uh, when you celebrate with other people. So what I, what I will do is, and it may sound silly, I may give my, if I do something like have a, a good day where I've eaten really healthy and I, I did my meditation and I went to the gym, uh, I may give myself a proverbial sort of pat on the back, which may just mean at nighttime saying, you know, I did a, I did a good job today. And um, some people might dismiss that as childish or whatever, but that's okay. Um, I feel good in celebrating my own accomplishments. So giving ourselves a pat on the back, Jeremy, and then also sharing it with somebody who knows about our goals and really wants us to succeed. It could be a text message. Hey, you know, this is what I did. I'm really proud of myself. And, and having that other person say, I'm proud of you too. You know, you did such a great job there. Um, so it requires finding friends who are there to lift you up as well. Um, that's my practice. And that's what I encourage my patients to do is to find one person who's going to really celebrate with them all year long, each victory. I offer two thoughts, Jeremy. The first, again, out of the research that's been done, which is that if you can pair but P-A-I-R, a activity that is, I'll say, slightly painful because that's what we're talking about by a resolution, something that's if it was easy to do, we'd be doing it already, with something we want to accomplish, something we enjoy, then our chances of being able to do it become greater. So if there's a TV show you like to watch, gives you a lot of pleasure, if you basically commit that you're not going to turn that TV show on until you've accomplished the activity, the exercise you said you would do, then that's one way to maximize the likelihood. And then the TV show becomes the reward that you're asking about. In my own experience, I like working with someone else or a group of people towards the same goal, towards the same resolution. So if we have a group that's gonna to commit to walking three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at uh, 6 p.m. or 6 a.m., depending upon which it is, that is likely to drive us to be successful 
because first of all, we have an obligation to the group. So when we want to turn over in bed and go back to sleep, we know that there'll be people disappointed. And then when we all do it three times a week, we can go out for a latte over at the coffee shop and celebrate together. And it's that ability to combine these various activities with diff different emotional inputs. Because being with friends is positive. Uh, succeeding with friends is even more positive. Being able to be someplace where there's a certain small reward, the latte, is very positive. And that then becomes a reinforcing cycle. And when one of us drops out, the other people are going to call that person and bring the individual back in. You can share healthy eating with your family. You can share exercise with friends. There are a lot of different places and ways that you can accomplish it. And my experience has been doing it together is always more successful than when I try to do it alone. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website, robertperlmd.com, and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.